0: All right, friends, we're diving right into week six of the sermon series on leadership lessons from Nehemiah. A reminder that if you've missed any of these sermons, you can go to our YouTube channel, simply search for Bel Air Church on YouTube. Get started in the first week, perhaps after the service. And it's called, God is looking for leaders. And a reminder, if you haven't been with us, you know, leaders and leadership is a word that some people identify with and others don't. But the reality is, If you have any influence over somebody else's thoughts or actions, Ken Blanchard, a great writer on leadership, says this. You are a leader because leadership is about influence. And it's not about necessarily your ability, but your availability to be used to influence other people. Now, of course... As we've marched through this sermon series, going through the book of Nehemiah, we've been reminded that God is calling us not just to be people of influence and not just to be good at it or great at it, but to be godly leaders. As you look out over human history, even around the globe today, there are some great leaders but are leading people into some awful things. And so my hope, number one, is that you would catch the vision that God longs for you to See how much influence you have in your life with your roommates, your family, your friends, people that you work with, neighbors or strangers, but also that you would be open in very practical and powerful ways to grow in your ability to lead others, even yourself, for the glory of God. All right, so we get to Nehemiah chapter 5. It doesn't necessarily have to be that you've Been with us every week to understand what's going on. I'm going to give a quick little overview. Uh, Nehemiah, a character in scripture, a historical person who was the cupbearer to the king of Persia. This is one of the books of the 66 books of the Bible. Nehemiah is writing from the first person. And in the history of the nation of Israel, God's called first Abram. Later changed his name to Abraham. And he and his wife, Sarah, had uh, a child named Isaac. And Isaac had a son named Jacob. And Jacob had his name changed to Israel. Israel had 12 sons. They became the 12 tribes of Israel before it was a geopolitical state. It was a people and it was God's people. And God said, if you follow me, if you obey me, if you live the way that I long for you to live, you will be blessed, you will flourish. And even your, your neighbors and the foreigners in your midst will experience joy and peace and belonging, unlike the world has ever seen. But the nation of Israel, like all people, we forget. We forget what really matters. We forget how we should live and how we should love. And so in the early books of the Bible, God's people forget who God is and who God has called them to be. And foreign invaders come in and scatter the people as they worship other gods, as they oppress not only the neighbor, but the foreigner in their midst. And so they live in exile for for many, many decades. Eventually, over time, a group of Israelites go back to Jerusalem, the place that God longed to establish here on earth, from there that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And they rebuilt the temple. However, as time goes by, in fact, 90 years go by, there's two failed attempts to build the wall around Jerusalem that had been destroyed by fire. And so Nehemiah, as the cupbearer to the king of Persia, a Jewish official working in a foreign land, feels the call of God to go to Jerusalem and to ask the king of Persia permission, not only to go, but to ask permission for the resources to help rebuild the wall. Last week, he gets to Jerusalem. He makes his plans. He recruits the people. And we find ourselves right now in chapter five, the wall is halfway finished. Remember last week, if you were with us, we talked about how to handle opposition and how to have the perseverance in the midst of opposition, an opposition that can come from outside, an opposition that can happen from within, opposition that rises up within yourself. Well, in chapter five right here, we're gonna see that a great conflict arises within the people. This is not a conflict that comes from outside. This is not foreign invaders, but a conflict rises up. And we're going to take a look at, and this is the whole focus of this week, week six, is the passion of a leader. Now, passion is an interesting word. The word passion comes from the Latin, passio. It also comes from the Greek word pathos. Both of those words, the Latin and the Greek, both mean suffering. Have you ever thought about it that way? That to be truly passionate about something or someone means that you're willing to suffer or sacrifice for it or for them? True passion is something that causes you to, to step outside your comfort zone, to lay down your preferences, even to the point of laying down your lies for the sake of the thing that you are passionate about. You know, you've heard of that great film, The Passion of the Christ. Many people refer to the last week of Jesus' life on earth as the Passion Week. And it's a reminder that God's love for us is so great. His passion for us is so great that he is willing to suffer, even the point of death on a cross, out of love for us. And so as we dive into this, this chapter five, we're going to take a look at two things. That godly leaders are passionate in conflict And number two, that godly leaders are passionate in temptation. But again, a reminder of that original meaning of the word passion, a willingness to suffer, a willingness to sacrifice. Again, first in conflict and then in temptation. So let's take a look. I'm going to read uh, the beginning verses of Nehemiah chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. And I'm simply going to start by reading verses 1 through 5 of Nehemiah chapter 5. Now there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish kin. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. We must get grain so that we may eat and stay alive. There were also those who said, we are having to pledge our fields, our vineyards and our houses in order to get grain during the famine. And there were those who said, we are having to borrow money on our fields and vineyards to pay the king's tax. Now our flesh is the same as that of our kindred. Our children are the same as their children. And yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have been ravished. We are powerless and our fields and vineyards now belong to others. All right, what's going on? What's, what's the conflict that is rising up? A couple of things are happening right here. As you've heard, and as you look at that section, a multitude of things are happening. There are many of the people of the nation of Israel. And as they are doing the work, they need to be fed. And they first are facing food shortages. They begin to complain, we don't have enough food to survive. It's a common problem around the globe, common problem in our nation. It's a common problem throughout history, a lack of food. They're malnourished. They are going hungry. But why, why is this happening? Well, a number of things, they're outgrowing the supply of food. But then something even more problematic happens. As you heard here, they begin to leverage the equity in their homes and in their vineyards to be able to to pay for the food. They're basically mortgaging what they have to put food on the table. Even more so, it says that they have to mortgage their fields to pay for the the king's taxes. Even more so, they have to not just mortgage their homes, they have to sell off their own children to be able to put food on the table. This is horrific. As they are building this wall that God has called them to build, they're having to deal with food shortages, mortgaging their homes, high taxes, and some of their family has now been sold off into slavery. Now, a great reminder that when we're called to do God's work, we are not immune to problems, common problems that people face. You know, I've had over the years as a pastor, many people come to me saying, you know, I've, I've made changes in my life. You know, I've, I've kicked this addiction. I'm in healthy relationships. I'm, I'm following God's leading. And yet I just lost my job or I just got evicted Or I just got diagnosed with cancer again. And a lot of people understandably struggle with what seems to be a a contradictory experience of I'm faithfully following God and now I'm experiencing trouble, heartache. You know that famous book, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? Some people say, why do bad things happen to, to godly people? And the truth is this, as Jesus says, don't be surprised when you face trouble on this earth, our cars are going to break down. We're going to have to pay high taxes. There's going to be things that we experience emotionally, physically, financially, relationally. They're just awful. And somehow in God's mysterious sovereignty, God allows it to happen. And there's not this this one-for-one exchange that God says, if you follow me, that everything will be easy. If you follow me, then you'll never have hardship. If you follow me, then, then everything will just be absolutely easy. No, no, no. In this world, it seems like in my own experience that as I faithfully follow God, sometimes things get harder and it requires a passion to rise up in my life and in your life, a willingness to sacrifice For the things that God longs for us to experience. So that's the conflict that rises up. And what's so remarkable is this wrongdoing that is happening isn't coming from the outside. This isn't foreign invaders. This isn't the Persian kingdom. This isn't the Assyrians who are taxing the people, who are charging high interest to the people, who are enslaving the people so that they can have money for food. This is happening all within the Jewish family. In a moment, you're going to see that it's the nobles and the officials within the Jewish community. It's the haves that are taxing the have-nots. It is the haves that are leveraging high interest to the have-nots. It is the haves, brothers and sisters in the Jewish community, the wealthy who are actually enslaving the have-nots children so that they can have food On their table. This is horrific. And a great reminder that that brokenness doesn't just happen out there, it can happen in here. God's people are not immune to injustice. God's people are not immune to oppressing others. God's people are not immune to being selfish. And so this wrongdoing, it affects Nehemiah. And that's the key. That if we're going to be godly leaders who are passionate in conflict, then wrongdoing has to affect us. Now, before I get to Nehemiah's response, if you would uh, imagine me as a young youth pastor. Just a year into the job, many, many years ago, a decade and a half ago, and I stepped into this role. And there was this... uh, ministry, this, this camp that we used to go on every single summer. It was called Houseboats. And we'd go out to the Arizona desert, we'd go to Lake Mead and we'd, you know, rent like, ten, it was a massive thing, hundreds of kids. And we'd rent like 10 houseboats and all the kids would be on it and the leaders were there. And I discovered in the very first day that there was this kind of culture, there was this practice of two things that seemed to just be baked into this houseboat trip. One, there was pranks and it was just part of what everybody expected. Number two, there was food fights. Now, in the very beginning, I came into this role, again, first year, and you know I'm familiar with pranks. I've done pranks, I've been pranked. uh, I've been in food fights, I've instigated food fights in my life, but there was just, there was something about how far the students were taking it and how far the leaders were taking these pranks and just how intense these food fights got that, that something began to well up in me. But the problem was my personality back then is I was a people pleaser and I wouldn't allow the wrongdoing to affect me at the level that it should have. And so though I was kind of affected internally, I just, I never spoke up. I let it slide. And I saw some kids who really couldn't stand it for themselves in tears because of the pranks. I saw some kids who couldn't, you know, fight back or didn't want to fight back in the food fight in tears because they were hurt. And things, as they often do with teens, as they often do where leadership gives free reign for it to happen, it began to escalate and escalate and escalate until the third day. And there was this intensity of pranks that happened and leaders were getting involved and it all culminated into the biggest food fight that I've ever seen in my life. And it was hot and it was on the sand uh, of the lake. It was in the water. It was in the, the houseboats. And, and, and all of a sudden I hear this scream. And I rush back to one of the houseboats and I see a student in the water and there is blood everywhere. And there's this chaos of emotion. And one of the leaders jumps in who's an EMT and he pulls the student out and he had this huge gash on his leg. Apparently he had been running away from those who were trying to throw food at him and he jumped out the back and landed on the propeller of the back of the houseboat, sliced his leg open. And finally, something in me just snapped. I was finally affected by the wrongdoing and anger welled up in me. And yet in that moment, I lashed out in anger. And I said some awful things that I regret. I was led in that moment by my emotions. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we're called to live our emotions and not be led by them. In that moment, I went from one end of the spectrum One end of of being over here, of not being affected by emotion and not being affected by the wrongdoing. And in an instant, I snapped and I went all the way over to the other end of the spectrum and my anger just poured out of me. And I was yelling at the kids and I was yelling at the leaders. And in that moment, it was my anger that led me. Godly leaders do neither. They are affected by wrongdoing but they are led by God in how they respond. Let's take a look at how Nehemiah responds. In verse six of chapter five, Nehemiah says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these complaints. After thinking it over, and that's the key right there. It's so easy to, to brush over this, to rush past it to the next verse, but I want you to catch this. He was angry at what he saw, what was he seeing? There was people who were being oppressed by their own people. In fact, it says in Exodus two twenty five. this is the Mosaic law. This is the law that God gave Moses to the nation of Israel that you can lend to one another, but never charge interest. So he is seeing that God's people are disobeying God's law. They're usurping and leveraging Their relationship in ways that are exploiting the have-nots in their community. In fact, it says in the Mosaic law to never enslave another person. And here they are doing it to their brothers and sisters. It is this awful thing that rightly, with righteous indignation, Nehemiah gets angry. Again, when I was younger, I used to think that you should never get angry. That's wrong. God doesn't like anger. But a reminder, it says in Scripture, in your anger... Do not sin. We talked about this last week, that there is a range of emotion that is appropriate. We're called to, to respond emotionally in a way that, that really matches the severity of the situation. And Nehemiah had it right. He was angry because of what God's people were doing to each other, how they were disobeying God's law, how there was this oppression and injustice that was happening. But unlike me on the houseboat trip, he wasn't led by his anger And he stopped and he thought about it. And that was the step that I missed many years ago. I went from one end of the spectrum to the other and I didn't pause long enough. I didn't rest long enough in God and who God says I am to actually consider, now, what do I do with this anger? How do I appropriately respond? And that's the key. I believe every single one of us our personality naturally finds ourselves at some point on that spectrum. We either stuff our anger, we never speak up, we are a doormat, we, we see things, we, we never are a voice for the voiceless and we just, we are uh, passive. Or on the other end, we lash out, we react. We're like volcanoes erupting every which way. Godly leaders are passionate in conflict in a different way. In a third way, in the narrow way of following Jesus, where on one hand, we are affected by the wrongdoing, but we are led by God. That's the key. And I found that as I've put this into practice, there has been an absolute transformation in my leadership. I learned it over the years of student ministry and ultimately coming into this role. Eight years now as the senior pastor, you can imagine, how much conflict I and our leaders have had to navigate. And it's not just in my my career. It's not just in my vocation, but in my life, with my wife, with my kids, with my sister, with my parents, with my neighbors, with my friends, with, with people that I've just quickly interacted with. The conflict arises. It is part of the human condition. And when there's conflict that results in wrongdoing, when there's oppression, when there's injustice, when there's things that blatantly God says that this is how we shouldn't treat one another. I've had to grow in my ability to have a reaction that is appropriate. But also what it says in scripture is to never let the sun go down on your anger. There needs to be a response but a response that doesn't come before you first rely on God's leading. Let's continue on here. Nehemiah is modeling this for us. The wrongdoing has affected him. He turns to God. And then the third point is that the response has to come from you. As the leader, you can't wait for somebody else to to initiate speaking out against that wrongdoing. It has to come from you. It's only gonna happen if it affects you It only happens after God leads you. Let's take a look at how Nehemiah responds. Again, in verse seven, he says, After thinking it over, I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, You are taking interest from your own people. Right from the get go, he goes right to the people that are committing the wrongdoing. He goes right to them, and we believe that this is in private. Even Jesus says later on in the Gospel according to Matthew that when someone sins against you, first, you need to go directly to them in private. And this is absolutely key because I see this happen all the time, that people, when they are wronged, rather than going to the person who has wronged them, or if they see wrongdoing and go to the person that is the offending party, they they go to somebody else. Or they first publicly announce something or they go to Twitter, uh, or or, or they send a big email, CCing everybody in the organization. Rather than doing that, Nehemiah goes right to the offending party. And this is key, that if we're going to be godly leaders who are actually willing to sacrifice and suffer in conflict to lead for God's glory, we need to be willing to do the hard work of going right to the people who are doing the wrongdoing. I think sometimes It's so much easier to just send a mass email. Sometimes it's easier just to send just a public um, social media post. Sometimes it's just easy to say something in a big group meeting rather than do the hard work of walking up to an individual and say, I see what's going on. And to talk straight to them of how you see them committing a wrongdoing to you or to somebody else. And he goes straight to these leaders, these nobles, these officials. And we believe of what happens next, that they don't listen. And sadly, that's often what happens. So then he goes and he shares in the public arena. This continues on in verse seven. And he says, and I then called a great assembly to deal with them. And I said to them, now in a public venue, first it was private. Now it's in public. As far as we are able, we have bought back our Jewish kindred who had been sold to other nations. There had been this practice of the people of Israel having to send their kids off to slavery to foreign nations so that they could put food on their table. But he says, but now you are selling your own kin who must then be bought back by us. These nobles, these officials were silent and could not Find a word to say. You see, everybody knows the truth. And when you're able to identify the wrongdoing and you're able to speak it clearly in private and in public, everybody knows the truth. There's no arguing. There's no trying to get out of this. In this situation, though often there is in our own lives, at this point, there's nothing that they could say. In verse nine, so I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. And he appeals not to morality. He appeals to their maker, who God says they're called to be. And he says this, should you not walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us stop this taking of interest. Restore to them... This very day, their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards and their houses and the interest on money, grain, wine and oil that you have been exacting from them. Again, he starts in private, then he goes in public and he appeals to their maker. He says, why won't you walk in fear of the Lord? And then he goes so far to say, what you were doing is causing all the other nations around us to look at us the same like they look at every other nation, We are called to be different. We are called to be distinct. Your actions are ruining our testimony for the living God. And this is a great reminder that God's people are called to be set apart. We're called to live unlike the rest of the world lives. We're called to love unlike the rest of the world loves. We're called to welcome the stranger in our midst, to lay down our lives for one another. We're called to live distinctly so that People will see our good deeds, as it says in Matthew, and praise our Father in heaven. God calls us to be a blessed people so that we can be a blessing to others. The problem is them back then and often us today, we don't look any different than the rest of the world. We fall into the same patterns of deceit. We fall into the same patterns of selfishness. We follow the same patterns of needing to be in control. And as you look at studies that have been done among self-proclaimed Christians and other faith groups, in many ways, the behavior is often exactly the same. And this is why God is calling us to follow Jesus every day and everywhere with everyone. That ultimately the lives that we live aren't just for ourselves, but for God's glory. In every moment of every day, we have an impact, an influence, not just on people that we know, but people we don't know. And God longs for us to live our lives and to be leaders that actually cause people to to take notice, to consider, why would you lead that way? Why would you have that integrity? Why would you forgive? Why would you hire that person? Tell me what's going on. Why would you do this? And it's an opportunity for us to, to reveal that it's because of Jesus in our lives that transforms how we lead, how we love, how we live. And so Nehemiah is responding privately. He's responding publicly. He appeals to their maker. He reveals to them that they're having a bad testimony to all the nations around them. And then he speaks very specifically and says, this is how we're going to fix it. You're going to give them everything back. You're going to pay back the interest. You see, this takes a lot of work. You know, it's one thing to get angry. It's one thing to have a private conversation. It's one thing to have a public conversation. It's another thing to come up with a solution that isn't popular with the offending party. Can you imagine how upset these nobles and officials get in this moment? All that they've come to to expect all that they've planned for in the future of this revenue stream has now been lost because of great leadership, godly leadership by Nehemiah. I can't even imagine how that conversation went down. I can't imagine uh, what it would have been like for Nehemiah. I'll say it this way. To confront the wealthiest people in the community on behalf of the have-nots, This isn't attacking the wealthy. It's attacking oppressors that happened to be wealthy. These are the very people that perhaps could fund the building of the wall. And Nehemiah is courageous enough to confront them in their wrongdoing. I mean, think about all the things that could have gone wrong. They could have overthrown him. They could have used their position, their power, their privilege to, to get him ousted. I mean, he's, he's talk about passion, talk about suffering, talk about sacrifice. You know, I think about in my eight years of uh, leading. In this role, uh, you know, many people really early on says, you know, be really, really careful, be really careful to not follow anybody else's leading if it is contrary to God's leading, regardless of, of how much they give to the church. And I've got to tell you, this is one of the areas that I feel like I've been so focused on from day one in this role. To say, God, I want to follow you. I want to trust you. And if I, in following you, Make decisions that cause some people, regardless of who they are, regardless of how little or how much they've given, how much they've volunteered their time. And if it causes them to be upset, so be it. And that takes sacrifice. I gotta tell you, that's a lonely place to be in as a leader. And Nehemiah was so faithful. And it goes on. And he finishes by saying this in verse 12. In response, they said, they could have said anything, but here's how they responded. We will restore everything and demand nothing more from them. We will do as you say. And so Nehemiah calls the priests and made them take an oath to do as they promised. He doesn't take their word for it. He says he brings the priests in and makes them make an oath publicly. He then, verse 13, uses it as an opportunity to teach the whole of the assembly. I shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out everyone from house and from property who does not perform this promise. Thus may they be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen and praise the Lord. And the people did as they promised. This remarkable thing happens, especially within God's people. Again, that's, that's all who Nehemiah is dealing with. All of them believe in God. And so when Nehemiah is appealing, not to morality, but appealing to their maker, I believe the Holy Spirit moved in their heart to help them realize the wrongdoing they had been doing to their fellow Israelites. And I believe it was a supernatural transformation that happened in their hearts for them not to argue, not to overthrow Nehemiah, not to push back. But I believe they were cut at the heart. They were convicted. They repented. They turned from their action and they publicly said, and they were willing to take an oath. We will do as what you say. I believe they did it not because Nehemiah said it, but because God changed their heart. You see, if we're going to be people of influence, and if we're going to be people who actually influence wrongdoing, if we influence patterns of oppression, we can't stay silent, nor can we just react out of anger. But we need to have an appropriate response. We need to be led by God. We need to go to people privately. And if so, if we need to, to, go to it publicly, but we appeal to who God is calling them to be. That's the highest road. That's the highest aim. This is not about just changing behavior. This is not putting threats on somebody. That's not saying that if you don't do this, then I will do this. It's, it's appealing to the greatest transformational force of all, and it's God. So Nehemiah models for us how to be passionate in the midst of conflict, I want you to think about in your own life. Where are you experiencing conflict right now? Is it at home? Is it with extended family? Is it with a neighbor? Is it in your workplace? I would love for you to, to literally put these things into practice. Again, I'm not talking about conflict of just difference of opinion. I'm not talking about just personality clashes. I'm talking about deep, deep conflict that comes from wrongdoing from injustice, a deep sense of imbalance of of evil just perpetrating relationships or a setting. This is our opportunity to, to react accordingly, to be led by God and to follow these steps. All right, the second half of this though is that godly leaders are passionate in temptation. You see, here you've got Nehemiah. He responds in an appropriate way. And he calls them to a certain standard of living, a certain standard of of leading, a certain standard of loving their neighbor. But he doesn't just say, do this and he not do it. He practices what he preaches. And this is so key for us as leaders, as people of influence that we never live a double standard. That what we call people to, we call ourselves to first and foremost that we're not telling some people to do this and we're doing the opposite thing. And what's interesting, just how this is laid out, when you get to verse 14, there's this kind of biographical little insert that pulls us out of the historical flow of the the narrative of Nehemiah. You see, they're still halfway done with building the wall when all this conflict rises up. But then Nehemiah kind of steps out of it for a moment and speaks to how after this wall is completed, which we'll get to in the following chapters, he becomes governor over the land, governor over Judah for 12 years. And he goes into detail about how he leads during those 12 years as a governor. And I believe one of the reasons why he places it right in this moment is he's showing us that he led in the same way he called other people's to lead. His influence was at the high standard that God called him to have influence in the same way he called other people to do. And you're gonna see here that there is great temptation that rises up as you grow as a leader. And we're gonna see here that this temptation to be more, to do more, to have more, which is inherently part and parcel with being a leader is a temptation that godly leaders are called to passionately navigate and it requires sacrifice to follow God's leading through it. I want to read this section. It's a longer section beginning in verse 14 uh, through the end of the chapter. It's 14 through 19, just six uh, verses. He says this, Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, again, he's stepping outside of the narrative to speak to something greater. From the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took food and wine from them besides 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of the Lord. Indeed, I devoted myself to the work on this wall and acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 people, Jews and officials besides those who came to us from the nations around us. Now that which was prepared for one day was One ox and six choice sheep and fowls were prepared for me in every 10 days, skins of wine in abundance. Yet with all of this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because of the heavy burden of labor on the people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. All right, let's take a look in here. First and foremost, temptation, like wrongdoing needs to affect you. Again, on one end of the spectrum for wrongdoing is you're never affected by it. On another end of the spectrum for temptation is that temptation, you never notice it, you're never affected by it. And you just, you fall into these temptations, these traps that rise up when you're in a position of power, a position of privilege. And those three things, you could say, are our, our abuse of position, our abuse of power, and our abuse of privilege We see it throughout leaders around the globe and throughout history, and we're going to see it right here. I want to show you how the former leaders, the former governors, these are Israelite leaders, how they abused their position, how they abused their power, and how they abused their privilege. These are the temptations, I believe, that face every single person on the planet. The first is this. Take a look at what I just read. Uh, Verse 15, the former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took food and wine from them besides 40 shekels of silver. This is an abuse of their position. They are positioned as leaders, as governors. And from that position, they were laying heavy taxes on the people. There's a temptation when you are in a position of influence to begin to use the people around you and to treat the people around you as objects, to see them simply as kind of like limited wells of resources that exist for you. And whether it's using them to get ahead in your career, whether it's using them to to do the work that you don't want to do, that you feel like is too little for you, Whatever it might be, there is a temptation to abuse our position. But it goes on. Listen to this: Even their servants lorded it over the people. So not only are the governors abusing their position, their servants, who are not in a position of power, they have power because their servants, to so the ones who are lording over them, they abuse their power. It is this trickle-down oppression that's happening within the leaders of the nation of Israel. And we need to be so careful and to be so sensitive to the temptation of the abuse of power when we can be people who can make decisions that affect lives, that affect emotions, that affect people, to never abuse that. But the third is this, and Nehemiah says it twice. There has been formally the abuse of Privilege. You know, there's privileges that come with positions of leadership. For Nehemiah, he was given a daily food allowance. So we see in verse 14 and then later on in verse 18, twice he makes mention that he never took the daily food allowance. Though that was a privilege given to him as governor, he knew that the effects of that would put a greater burden on the people. And so formally, the former governors uh, and the servants, they abused their position, their power and their privilege. And Nehemiah was faced with the same temptation. So how did he navigate it? Well, the first is this, he acknowledged it as a temptation. He knew that this was something that could take him down. I remember many years ago, there was a, a significant moral failing of a leader many, many years ago uh, in the church that I was working, that I worked underneath. And after that, a thousand people left the church. And a couple of weeks after that, we found out the reason and the source and the accusations that came about that were the, the essence of that moral failing. And I remember a number of weeks after that, I was gathered together with Some of the guys that I've been part of an accountability group, a men's group, for a number of years, and as we were going around the circle, a number of the guys speaking about that experience that that other leader had done began to say, "I would never do that. I I, I would. uh, I cannot believe that he did. I would. I could. I would never do that." And and there was this growing sense of, "Yeah, we would never make that mistake." And it came around to me, and I said, "You know." I think I can make that mistake. I think that could happen to me. And they looked at me like, what? Why would you say that? And I never forget that moment. And I said to him, I said, you know, the moment I begin to say I would never fall for that temptation, pride can rise up in my life. And I feel like that's a backdoor entry for the enemy to say, (laughs) he thinks he can do it on his own. He thinks he'll never be tempted by this when you least expects, it in a, in a moment or a season of weakness or frustration, that's when it's going to happen. And I found myself in that moment saying, you know what, that could happen to me. That could be a temptation. Therefore, I'm going to be intentional to guard against it. Every single one of us is tempted by different things. And the amazing thing about the diversity of humanity is the things that tempt me don't tempt you. And the things that tempt you don't tempt me. And if we're going to grow as godly leaders that we need to be affected by and we need to acknowledge how we might be tempted in our lives. For some of us, our temptation is to to stay silent. For some of us, our temptation is to, to lash out, whatever it might be when we acknowledge it. And when he acknowledged these things, he knew that the only way forward was to love God and to honor God and to follow God faithfully. Again, he speaks in... Verse nine, this is earlier on. He says, the thing that you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our, our enemies? In this biographical kind of excerpt here, I have to assume that he fought those temptations by, by trusting God, by following God, for asking God for strength. And so we believe he never abused his position, his power, or his privilege. In fact, that section ends, I'll read it again. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. He is constantly resting in his relationship with God. Out of the rest of that, he goes into his work. He goes into his leading. He goes into his influence. And the amazing thing, when I read this section, is out of his love of God, he, he grows in his love for the people. And that's one of the greatest things that we can do as we love God is to love the people in our lives. And it's our love for God and our love for people that enables us to sacrifice in the midst of conflict, to sacrifice in the midst of temptation. If we don't love God and if we don't love the people that we're influencing, that we're in relationship with, it's not worth the sacrifice. It's not worth the suffering. And therefore, we won't have passion to enter into conflict in a godly way, to navigate temptation in a godly way. So friends, let's come back to this original idea that predates the sermon series that we love because God first loved us, that we can lead only in as much as we follow God first. And so as we grow in our ability to be godly leaders that lead with passion, let's remember right now and as we respond in worship that God loves us and adores us, let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your love. I thank you that you've modeled for us what it means to be a passionate leader. We see you rise up in anger when you overturn the tables in the temple. We see you weeping at the tomb of Lazarus. We see you speaking out against injustice and religiosity that breaks relationship with you, God. And yet, Jesus, we see you never led by those emotions. You're always led by the will of God the Father. So as we respond to you in worship, may we look to you to lead us, to guide us, to fill us with your spirit so that we would be the type of leaders you call us to be. It's in your name we pray and we say together, amen.